Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Don't Turn With The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy and I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Little, who's been part of Sir Andy Murray's coaching setup for nearly 15 years. Now, Matt's a lovely guy. He's full of wisdom, much of which is outlined in his new book, The Way of the Tortoise. It's all about living according to your values enjoying the journey and not being obsessed by reaching your goal too quickly. So building strong foundations, developing soft skills and paying your dues. Matt definitely walks his talk. He was very patient as we had one or two technical issues before we started recording and he shares some really valuable nuggets in this episode. Before we get to it, just a quick word to say thanks for all the messages and emails I've received recently. Apologies if I haven't got back to you. I've received so many and there's been just so much going on, but I guarantee that I have read every single one and they all mean so much to me. So if you've taken the time to write, sincerely, thank you. If you think this episode might be of value to anyone you know, I'd be very grateful if you could share it with them and spread the word about Don't Tell Me The Score as it really does make a difference. And don't forget to sign up to my weekly Monday on a Monday newsletter at my website, simonmundy.com. Right, let's get to this week's episode. Here is Matt Little. Matt, how's it going? Very good, thanks. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm okay. We've had a bit of a palaver getting this on air. You were eight minutes early, which is very unusual <laughs> for a guest. And then I've had a few technical problems. And you've been the um, personification of patience, which is actually <laughs> fitting in quite well with what we're talking about and some of the subjects of your book, isn't it? 
absolutely yeah patience is a virtue patience is a virtue uh, <laughs> well I, I just want to say a big thank you because you have been very patient anyway listen matt it's a it's a pleasure to have you on when i've read your story and i've done my research about you i've realized that you and i have a lot in common both you and i fell in love with tennis when we were young went to a, a club actually very near uh, each other played all the time we weren't quite good enough understatement <laughs> to make it as a pro player so we both in our own ways decided we wanted to do something else and you've ended up coaching a player essentially andy murray of course two wimbledon titles in 2013 and 2016 I was at those finals talking about them both on the radio. So I just think there's a lovely bit of symmetry. But uh, before, you know, I elaborate a little bit on mine, why don't you, let's talk about your journey starting at Sutton, which is just around the corner from me now and where I currently play. Yeah, um, my friends and I kind of just fell in love with the game, as you say. Sutton Tennis Centre opened probably about a 30, 40 minute walk from us. We used to go there with school occasionally but then yeah my friends and I just started heading down there and we just spent every waking moment at the club that we could essentially and then we'd enter all of the junior tennis tournaments throughout the summer we came into the sport very late probably around 12 or 13 so we were losing in the first few rounds of most of the local tournaments to be honest but we were usually still there on finals day because we just loved being around the sport we were friends with some better players. So it was just great to hang out, watch the junior finals and all those things. Yeah, we'd just spend the whole time at the club, essentially. And so I then ended up doing a bit of work at the club, behind the bar, duty manager, all these things. And then the club built a gym. And so I went off and did my studies. I knew I wasn't going to be anywhere near good enough to be an actual player. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a tennis coach, as it were. I took some coaching qualifications, but I knew I loved the physical side. So I'm, I guess I'm one of the rare people who knew kind of exactly what I wanted to do. At the age of 16, I knew I wanted to be a fitness trainer in tennis specifically. Was that a calling or was that a conscious decision, do you think? It just felt so natural. It felt like the natural way for me to go. It was just such an obvious, simple decision. Like we used to run the beep test every Sunday at our club and we, we loved it. You know, I've given a thousand kids the beep test since and, they, you know, mm. they're all crying off with calf sprains and sneezes and stuff but we just used to run it as a bit of a fun challenge every Sunday at the club and I loved it and my friends loved it too I just really enjoyed the physical aspect so it was just a yeah very natural very easy route for me and I was very very kind of tunnel vision and always have been ever since you hear cliches like you know follow your passion or whatever but I do think that we have got um something in us that knows that knows what we want to do, energises us, I would say, you know, and, and some people it can take 50, 60 years to find it. And then you get those occasional few of, of whom you are one where you just know early on. But then it's still about putting it into practice, taking the steps, making the decisions, taking the risks, all that kind of stuff. And you've um, basically detailed really what you've learned along your journey in your fantastic new book, The Way of the Tortoise, which is a great name, which I've thoroughly enjoyed reading. So congratulations on it. I thought it was also interesting. It started out really as just a kind of bit of life guidance for your son, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was actually started writing it as notes going in and out of Wimbledon, funnily enough. I was on the train like an hour and a half, two hours. I live in Essex. 
So I was going in and out of Wimbledon. This would have been 2015, 2016. The painful lot semi-final loss against Federer or, or yes. 16. Andy won. You should know which one, Matt. Sorry, yeah, I, I know. I should, I should be clearer on those, really. They all blend <laughs> into one these days. But, um, yeah, so I was just writing notes because it's a bit morbid. But I had a, a young son and I was thinking, well, if I wasn't here anymore, what, I, what would I want him to know about me? And what would I want to pass on to him about how to succeed? If I have achieved some success in life, how would I want to set him on his journey to kind of achieve whatever it is he wants to achieve. And so anyway, I was writing notes and notes and notes and and this became pages. And I thought, you know what, there might be a book in this. And before you know it, a few chapters came along and I thought, okay, let's send this out to some publishers. And it got some traction, you know, but um, even getting it onto the shelves has been a kind of tortoise journey in itself. It's taken five years. One publisher picked it up and then dropped it and then another publisher's picked it up and then different editors have come in and out and it's been its own little journey, which makes it, again, all the more gratifying when it finally comes out and you actually hold it in your hands that you just kind of think, wow, okay, you know, I've achieved something here. And that is the lesson really that, that comes through, isn't it? That life has ups, life has downs, and it's about hanging in there for the long haul. And so let's dive into the lessons and some of the stuff you talk about. But I think it's important first to establish the two types that you identify. So can you go ahead and just how you would differentiate them? I draw the example of famous fable of the hare and the tortoise. Got your hares in life and your tortoises in life. The hares in life are people who want to shoot to the top and achieve success very, very quickly. Those are the people we tend to celebrate more in life at the moment. It's your 20-year-old driving a Lamborghini on Instagram rather than your 50-year-old who's worked his way all the way up through the ranks to becoming the CEO of a company. Why do you think society celebrates hares more than tortoises? I've got my theory, but I want to hear yours first. Well, hares, by their very nature, I think, create waves. They create attention because they can be quite brash. They can be quite attention-seeking, quite selfish in a way, and so they can achieve great things, but also because of their very nature, tend to crash and burn quite quickly having achieved those things. There are some that manage to sustain, but most actually shoot to stardom and then crash and burn, essentially, whereas the tortoise on the flip side kind of makes these slow, steady gains, little progressions week by week, day by day, year by year, and eventually manages to achieve their goal. Which one's Andy Murray? <laughs> I, I let people make their own mind up. No, no, no. I'm not letting you off with that. that. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask him. But um, yeah, I want people to read the book and think, you know what? There's a lot of hair in me. Or there's actually, you know, what? I am a tortoise. And I think it's interesting as you read the book, who you would pick out in your own life as being hares and tortoises in your workplace. Because... Uh, it's quite fascinating when she, once you've read the book to kind of see people through that lens, just kind of figure out actually also, which, like you say, which one am I? And then how do I fit in the world? And how do I fit in the workplace being who I am? Because I think once you understand that, you can be calmer, more patient with yourself as well. Be more understanding of how you've dealt with certain situations and learning from different situations too. So having read your book, it's clear that... What really shines through for me is the importance of values. So you spoke about tortoise traits, loyalty, passion, positivity, generosity. And I think we live in a culture that's very goal focused. It's like you get to the goal 
And there's an element of do whatever it takes to get there. So I think it's, I've done some podcasts on this recently. It's slightly skewed, let's say, towards the goals and values are perhaps a little lower in the pecking order. But what came through to me from what you were writing was about how actually, if you want to be a tortoise, if you want to continue that slow and steady growth, if you want to build relationships, if you want to keep moving forward, not necessarily at a meteoric rate, but at a a sustainable rate that's going to as well keep people on side, then it's about living according to your values more. I wonder if that resonated with you. It really does. To me, actually working in elite sport for as long as I have, okay, you do talk about goals, but we talk more about process goals than outcome goals a lot these days when coaching people. Because the theory is that if you look after your process as well, the outcomes will take care of themselves. And I think that establishing your values and holding yourself accountable to your values is actually looking after your process. And if you look after your process as well, as I've just said, then outcomes will happen as a result of that. So it's Mm. not just focusing on, okay, I want to win this tournament. But as we all know, what is it that I need to be able to do in order to win this tournament? Well, for me, if I want to be able to have this career, what values do I need to live by in order to eventually achieve this career and sustain success in this career? Because even in what I do in, in strength and conditioning for tennis players, elite level tennis players can employ quite young, inexperienced people. They're quite attractive to employ because they're cheap, they're willing to travel, they don't generally have family ties that they need to kind of look after. So they're quite an attractive prospect for a pro player. But of course, those people don't have that life experience. They haven't made the mistakes. They haven't learned from all of the valuable experiences that it's taken someone like me 20 years to reach that level. And therefore, when they do employ those people, there are so many holes in their skill set through no fault of their own that they are lacking. And I just feel like my advice to younger people in my profession and many other professions as well who are entry-level people is to say, just don't necessarily take that dream job immediately, but prepare yourself for it by taking other jobs that kind of build your levels to achieving that success. I know it's a an anti-message. And if someone had offered me an amazing job at 20, I would have probably bitten your hand off it as well. But I'm, I genuinely, having been through the process I've been through, I know Andy Murray or, or a player like that would have chewed me up and spat me out as a 21-year-old. I did not have the life skills, the experience, the ability to spot some a situation coming, the knowledge to know when to say something, when to say nothing, all of these skills that, uh, well, that I put in the book, I didn't have barely any of them. All I had, and I I talk about this in the book, when you're an entry-level person, what you have going for you is your enthusiasm, your energy, Mm. your willingness to try things, your openness, your lack of experience means you will be led quite easily, which is a good thing in many ways. And you should hone in on those skills. And yes, take roles that really make the most of those skills whilst being humble enough to know that you're the least experienced person in the room and you need guidance. I'm interested to know what you were like as a sort of 21, 22, 23 year old, because I know that I was so impatient. You know, I remember leaving university and feeling under pressure because I thought I had to have the job yesterday. And actually, I took a bit of a detour and I got back into broadcasting when I was 
probably 26, maybe even 27. And I remember at the time thinking, like, I'm geriatric, positively geriatric, you know? And it wasn't until I interviewed a guy called David Epstein, who who wrote a brilliant book called Range, which sort of argues that the sort of Tiger Woods model of success, you know, out of the traps, age two, winning things at 17 or whatever, isn't the normal way of doing things, either in sport or in life. And it made me feel a lot better about my, you know, looking back. But I think it's interesting, isn't it? Life goes really quickly looking back. But when you're looking ahead it feels like it's going to take forever. So yeah, how would you have reacted, do you think, to this advice of slow and steady wins the race when you were 21? Bearing in mind, I know what how badly you reacted when you were uh, denied the pass at Wimbledon that time. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I definitely would have reacted in a hair-type way. Very impatient, kind of, I want it yesterday, I deserve this, I'm ready for this already. I think the right people, though, told me the right messages at the right time, which was actually in a hard love kind of way, listen, you actually don't know anything yet. And that's okay. There's not that many people in life, I don't think these days, that are willing to tell you that in a caring way, in the supportive Mm. way. And I also don't think many people are ready to hear that these days either. Fairly hard message of, look, right now, you don't know anything. It's okay. You will do. You will be successful. But it's not yet. It's not now. And I talk about kind of having patient urgency in the book. So if you look at the hare and the tortoise in the race, actually the tortoise was the one with the most urgency. It never gave up. It continued going at maximum intensity for its own level until it achieved its ultimate goal, which was the finish line in the race. The hare, obviously, in the fable, sprints off significantly more athletically gifted, but doesn't have the urgency to finish the race and falls asleep by the side of the road. So actually, it's saying to a young person or anybody at the start of the journey, frankly, because COVID's forced so many of us into new journeys, whether that's new hobbies, new careers, new ways of life, to say, look, you're at the start of a journey. It's going to take you 10 years to be very good at this. And that's okay. But you still need to have that urgency and that drive to want to achieve but trust me, it's going to take you 10 years. You know? But that's why I think the values side is so important because if you can live according to your values along the way, then mm. you can enjoy the journey. Mm. I've heard you and Andy speak recently about, particularly, you know, Andy, I think it's fair to say with no disrespect, is somewhat in the twilight of his, you yeah. know, Hall of Fame career. And I've heard him talk um, recently about, you know, he's on the grass, he's practicing, he's going back to Wimbledon. And it's something that perhaps he would have taken almost a bit for granted earlier in his career, just something he did. And I think I've heard you talk a little bit about this as well. But then when you, you, again, when you look back, it is those almost mundane moments. The humor in your group has always been, you know, front and center and the forfeits and all that kind of stuff. And it's appreciating that as you go along. Yeah, it's funny. It's that wisdom of going through that journey. And I've been so lucky to have been a part of that journey and a brand to have shown me the loyalty that he has, that I've been with him for 13, 14 years, whatever it is now, that I've seen the start of the pro kind of side of his career, the middle and the end. And goodness me, you do take for granted those incredible moments that he's had and the brilliant team moments that we all had you do take for granted those moments because it's just happening week to week. Andy wins a tournament. 
you're straight on the plane to the next tournament, you barely celebrate. And actually now it's like those moments are so special. I talk about it in the book, Dealing with Success. You've got to celebrate. You've got to take a moment and just enjoy celebrating whilst, as soon as you can, starting the plan for the next step. Because when Andy reached world number one at the O2 that year at the Masters Finals, the very first thing that Ivan was talking, Ivan Lendl was talking to us about in the locker room was, okay, next year he needs to get better in these three things. We need to start planning the off-season now. We need to start getting ready because those other guys are going to catch him up. You know, next year, if we're not careful, let's start the plan. You and know, that so made a real impression on you, right? Oh, I couldn't. But I was like, wow, that's leadership right there. All I was thinking about was just, wow, what an amazing occasion, which it was. And that was the right thing. But his viewpoint as a leader was, okay, that one's in the cabinet. Let's move on and start the plan for the next phase. And I think it's so important to do both Yeah, is to really celebrate, properly celebrate in that moment go all out really enjoy it because those times in life are so so special and important whatever it is whether it's graduating university whether it's shooting a low handicap in golf whatever it is when you actually get there take the time to enjoy it but then as soon as is appropriate start the plan to getting better so i've um just handed in a few weeks ago the first draft of my book and okay. I was given some fantastic advice at the start by someone who was explaining how dopamine works, you know, and how, you know, it's the reward chemical. It's when we're striving to reach a goal, dopamine's being released. And then actually when you reach the goal, the dopamine stops because, yeah. you know, it's like being on the savannah. You can see the fruit, you can see the fruit. And as you're getting closer, the dopamine's going. Then as soon as you've got the fruit and you've eaten it, the dopamine served its purpose. So it stops, right? Which is yeah. a bit annoying, but that's why often <laughs> wins aren't quite as satisfying, let's say, as the journey. But I mean, as you know, writing a book, it's a gargantuan and at times torturous task, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it really is, you know, staring at a blank piece of paper, thinking, what am I going to put down? The advice I got was, to make sure that even if it's 500 words a day, saying to yourself, well done, you've done that. Certainly at the end of a chapter, well done, you've done that. And actually, then you can have those moments of satisfaction along the way. If you wait 10 years to be happy, then yeah. that, that's a big sacrifice. But if you can find the joy along the way, that's really important. But in hindsight, would you have celebrated the wins more would you have been more grateful for those day-to-day -day moments 100 fold so much more honestly i really regret that aspect of not taking the time to celebrate more and not appreciating those wins do you know what even just having the privilege of being in a locker room at a grand slam you know with all these great tennis players surrounding you and speaking to you and speaking to their coaches and creating those bonds that's so special it really mm. is so special i'm so lucky to have had that if i could speak to a me 13 years ago i'd say please just cherish every moment and no matter what take some time to celebrate the wins because goodness knows there's so much stress that everybody goes through to get to that position and there's quite a funny picture of me after the davis cup final when we won in 2015, I don't know if you've seen the picture, and it's basically me when the final shot, when Andy's lob lands in the what court. What a lob. What a lob. As that ball lands in the court, the entire team, support staff, are up on their seats, 
going crazy. And I promise you I'm sitting there just <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> like glum-faced. Oh, you know, I look like I've just lost my winning lottery ticket. <laughs> it was the end of a very, very long year. It was the last ball that Andy struck. You know, I was just kind of relieved that it was kind of done. Okay, two, three minutes later, I'm going as nuts as the rest of the team, but it was just like, okay. But that's actually what you go through as a support staff member. Not that I'm attention-seeking or I'm any more important than anybody. It's the athletes that do the special stuff on the field of play. But as a support team member, I was just like, oh, okay, that's done. Because there's a lot riding on Andy's shoulders, of course, the whole team, but especially Andy as the linchpin of the team to deliver results in those situations. So we, as his kind of closest team members, feel that pressure on him as well. A fraction of what he feels, a tiny fraction, but we feel it. And so kind of relieved for him in so many ways. But pressure is an interesting one. Sorry, a bit of a sidetrack here because you've got a lovely little anecdote in your book about um, just before the 2013 final. And I remember I was... You know, I was bricking it as well. So I was there and um, obviously he'd lost to Federer the year before. But I just had this feeling that, you know, this year could be different. He'd obviously beaten him in the US Open final the year before, hadn't he? And you were feeding him balls, you know, with your hand. Not particularly challenging, Matt, let's be honest. No, right? You've done this a million times before and your aim was all over the shop, right? But what I found interesting, though, was you talk about how Andy was really good, you know, was calm. Yeah, pressure is something that you generate yourself based on your own internal dialogue. Yeah, it's not an actual physical thing. And Andy talks a little bit about pressure in terms of, look, if you're an elite sports person, you live with pressure. People talk about pressure causing issues in their game or whatever it is they're performing. And of course, that does happen. But actually, as a professional athlete, if you do for a living, pressure is literally a part of it. But it is, it's an internally creative thing. There's no reason for me to not be able to feed Andy those balls, you know. And what I'm talking about here is a reaction drill. I throw tennis balls at him and he has to react and catch just to get his reactions ready before he goes out. I could not throw the balls in the right place that day. <laughs> and I may as well have said to him, Andy, I'm absolutely bricking it, as you say. And it, it was funny because there was two little areas to warm up and Novak's team had got there first to the nice, big, spacious area. And I had this little corridor bit to feed Andy the ball. And so, yeah, my, it just highlighted my skills even more kind of extremely. But, yeah, I personally think, and I say this in the book, I think you've got to recognise that you're going to feel pressure and prepare for that and think, how am I going to show up for that pressure? What am I going to do when that pressure arrives? How am I going to present myself? How am I going to behave? How do I want to deal with this situation? A lot of people bury pressure and go, it's okay, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not feeling under pressure. I'm not tight, not nervous. And by not talking about it, they feel like that's the best way to deal with it. But actually, it just doesn't help. Now, does talking about it get rid of the pressure? No, but it at least gets you flowing about it. It gets you talking about it. It gets you thinking about it in advance. And I believe that thinking about it in advance is at least the best way to arm yourself, like an internal dialogue, like I just said, you know. My particular dialogue is, I'm a good person. I've done my job to the best of my ability. I've done everything I possibly could to get that player ready for that match. No matter what happens, there will be a tomorrow and we'll make another plan no matter what happens. And just continually repeating that to myself in high-pressure situations really, really helps just kind of at least give you that poker face that you kind of need in pressure situations. 
Those are really good little mantras, actually, because they're all based in reality and they're not far out there. Read some really interesting research recently about affirmations and how people can get into affirmations. You know, I'm lovable or I'm this or I'm that. And if you don't believe it, they don't work. Like, in fact, they can make you feel worse. What you were just saying there is it's all fact based stuff. You're looking back on the work you've done, reminding yourself that the sun will still come up the next day. And so it's just keeping you grounded. So I think in terms of a, a sort of checklist of things to say, that, that was a really a good example of, of one that would work. Yeah, I think you've got to put some time and thought into these affirmations and figure out the ones that do and don't work for you. If you're, if you're saying I'm the best mathematician in the team and you're not, it's going to have counterproductive element, especially in your own psyche, because you're going to feel it in an even more extreme way. But if you say things that are true, and that are right, and that you genuinely believe in your heart, those are the things that seem to hit home. But some of the things that you write down, and I do write these down before high-pressure situations, some of them won't work at all anyway, even if they are true. It just doesn't quite hit that note for you. And therefore, you've got to recognize that, and the next time, figure out which ones do hit the note for you and try them. And then you end up with this streamlined three or four sentences that you say to yourself that just ease that little pressure valve in those moments. I've actually done a podcast recently on ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is another way of doing it, which I do now. Whatever comes up, whatever gibberish my mind comes out with, I'm just like, oh, there's my mind saying, I'm going to make a disaster of this. Yes, hello, (laughs) mind. Thanks very much for your input. And that's another quite nice way of just like not taking it too seriously. But uh, what works for you, I think it is, isn't it? I mean, a, a real theme in this in your work here is is around soft skills. First of all, can you just define what's the difference between hard skills and soft skills? So hard skills are the actual how to do of whatever job it is that you have. You know, so for me, the how to do is how many sets and reps of a particular exercise should a person get in order to achieve getting stronger or to achieve how long on a particular piece of equipment to get fitter. That's the hard skills of my job. And I believe, of course, there's a process to that and a journey to accumulating hard skills. But I think that that's the relatively easy part of a job. I feel like the element that isn't taught enough in our education systems and isn't spoken about enough in our kind of philosophies is the soft skills. And Harvard had done some studies on this for years, actually, in terms of the people that are more likely to be successful in jobs and what makes more successful leaders are people that have higher degrees of emotional intelligence uh, and people that can connect with their work colleagues in a better way. Mm. And so these are intangible things that are very, very important. And again, a lot of them are experiential, actually. You learn as you go and you make mistakes and think, okay, I won't make that mistake again. But I believe also that there's a few principles about these things that you can discuss and talk about. And I also think that different soft skills are applicable the more experienced you get. So we talked about your entry level people and what skills that they have. But even as you get into middle management and senior management and then kind of influencer level, your soft skills change based on the demands that are put on you and the expectations that are put on you in that situation. So your soft skills in terms of being a middle management person, and let's say the organization is going through change, the skills that you have in dealing with the team of people that you manage are so important, not the hard skills of how do you go through the process of making redundancies and streamlining teams, not that. How do you show up for your team on a daily basis? 
Are you available for them? How well do you listen to them? What words do you use when you're talking about the change that's coming? Do you say to them, don't worry, things won't change. Everything's going to be the same. I'll look after you no matter what. You know, do you present with things like that? Or do you say, okay, yes, this might be uncomfortable for us. How do we prepare for the uncomfortableness of this change? How do we talk about it as a team? I'm here for you anytime. So those are soft skills around that situation that I think are just vital. And to me, I don't know, even with COVID, it's not a particularly positive example, but the soft skills around how to deal with COVID, let's say walking into a shop, the soft skills of the staff, if you'd forgotten to have your mask on because you just weren't used to it, or you walked the wrong way around the arrows on the aisle, you know, just mistakes that people innocently make. The soft skills in people interacting with each other to say, oh, look, I'm really sorry, but, you know, would you mind just popping that mask a little higher up above your nose? Or, look, actually, that's the way. I know you're not used to this, but that's the way we need to walk just so that everyone stays. Rather than put your mask on or you're out, you know, or look, listen, can't you see the arrows on the floor? You know, people are already very stressed. The staff are clearly already very stressed. And again, for people to have conversations about, look, how are we going to show up to our customers? And just feeling how they feel and understanding that situation. I feel things would have flowed a lot better. People who've got that right, I think people will remember that. They certainly will remember the people who got it wrong. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Absolutely. And, and you talk about the different soft skills required at different stages but the principles underneath it, you gave some examples there. First of all, about honesty, you know, a middle manager saying, look, this might be hard, but I'm here for you. So there's an element of vulnerability there. There's caring for other people. And, you know, I do think that a lot of people will think, goodness, these are timeless skills, values, yet they are not as um, front and center. I, I don't know if I'm being a bit rose tinted spectacles but 
They don't feel like they're as perhaps front and centre as they maybe were when the values-goals ratio was a bit more balanced. Yeah, like I say, I I don't remember on any single training course I've ever been on or any university studies that I have where we really drilled into how do you need to present yourself? How do you need to tackle different situations? You know, How are you going to deal with team meetings? If you're the least experienced person in the room, are you the one that's continually talking? Or are you sitting back and just taking your time and absorbing the information? Again, just talking about these different examples and situations and playing role play with people in terms of these things, you're never going to get it all right. But like I said, I think you can start off on a much better footing than we think. I think we need to put more time into these elements because genuinely, I believe, certainly in my role in a high-performing team like Andy's or the Davis Cup team, It's been my soft skills, the way I've communicated, the way I've shown up, certainly as important, I think more important than actually the sets and reps that I gave them to do certain exercises. Yeah. I like to think that I've been a positive person to be around. I like to think that I've been easy to be around. Now, again, we come back to some of the hairs. If you are so unbelievably good at your job, but you have no people skills, if you're that good at your job, people will put up with you anyway because they know and recognize how great you are at your job. Therefore, look, I don't particularly like this person, but I, you know, we need them. We need that person in our team. And that's fine. But like I say, I think that's quite rare. Those people aren't the norm, as in you don't see them all the time. They're an extreme example. For the rest of us, I feel like we need to work on how easy we are to be around and how well we communicate and kind of link up with our other team. It's not to say be a yes person, be sycophantic, don't disagree. It's completely not what I'm saying. It is think about how you are being, be reflective of how you have been and also plan for how you are going to be, whether that's a team huddle before a match, if the player loses a really difficult match, if the player has a horrific injury, how are you going to be in those situations? Every time I spend time thinking about those things, something happens where I'm glad that I did spend that little bit of time thinking about and preparing for that situation. I never regret that time that I've spent planning ahead or reflecting back on how I've been. How long have you been with Andy now? Like, what, since 2007, isn't it? 2007, yeah, it was when we kind of first... So, I mean, so you've been together 14 years. I mean, he could have any trainer. He's been through quite a few, you know, coaches. Mm. And we know Mm. that Andy will leave no stone unturned in the pursuit of success. So if he hadn't liked you, for want of a better word, you'd have been on (laughs) the scrap heap. That's fair to say. That's not unfair, is it? So clearly your soft skills have enabled you to stay with Andy all this time. Is, do you think that's been the decisive thing? 100%. Like I said, I like to think I have a level of competency in, of course, in my yeah. job. You know, of, of course. course, I know how to take him for a gym session. I know what exercises work for him. That's always a changing thing as well. I like to think I've got my finger on the pulse with the changes that he needs to make. But genuinely, I think for me, it's not about the exercises. It's not. Andy kind of said to me in the you know, when we first started working together, I also want someone around who can make things fun for me. And in my first few sessions with him, you know, we spent a lot of time laughing in and around the exercises before the session, after the session. We spent a lot of time just having fun. And I talk about this in the book. There's a balance there between 
not taking yourself seriously, but taking the job that you do very seriously. Yeah. So when we're doing the drills and exercises, game face is on. Let's move your leg a little bit more in that way. Let's align yourself more in that bit more control there. Then in between exercises or before and after the session, a bit of a laugh and a joke about my exercising habits, the shape I'm in or whatever it may have been at the time. Not taking myself seriously at all in those moments, but then when it came to the work and the job, game face. And having a feel for those moments when there's time to crack a joke and then when there's time to be serious. And that's the feel side of it because you don't want to be the clown who's always having a joke and wanting to be someone's just their best friend because you want to be around them. But there is a time to have that kind of self-effacing laugh at yourself and not taking yourself too seriously. And that changes through your career as well. Because when I first started with Andy, I was much more of a joker and was probably the junior member of the team. I was around some much more experienced people. I knew it and I knew my place. Not that they were saying this is your place, but I felt it. I knew it. And then as time has gone by and people have left, I've become more and more senior in the team. And actually my role is less and less with Andy, the laughy, jokey side of things. And other people have taken that role. And I'm more of a council and more of a, an advisory role, and I suppose a more respected in the nicest possible way. It wasn't that I wasn't respected at the start? Definitely was, but my role mean, was yeah. more to be the energy and the fun. Yeah, and that yeah. was okay. You talk about feel, and that's another theme that that comes up. So I want to talk to you about that in a second. But I, as I was listening to you, I was thinking in terms of a way to differentiate what you call hairs and tortoises. So the hair is quite egoic it sounds to me quite it's like me it's all about me whereas mm. the tortoise is, is much more about we yes. is that is that right brilliantly put yeah i should have put that in the book actually that's <laughs> honestly that summed it up beautifully pairs want to be acknowledged and recognized for their work and their achievements immediately whereas a tortoise does a good job and doesn't tell anybody necessarily or mentions it but doesn't make a thing of it and kind of knows in the back of its mind that by doing that day in, day out, recognition will come in its own time. And again, when that recognition comes, it will be more genuine. Expecting or asking for credit for things has the opposite effect and people almost don't want to give you the credit. They think that's why he's done it. It's like people, I don't know, who video clips of themselves doing nice things online. You know, oh, look at this. I did this wonderful thing. And it kind of good to send a positive message out there, but it also in some ways, has the opposite effect of... It's a bit sanctimonious, isn't it? Watch a video yourself doing yeah. Why don't yeah. you just do it and tell nobody? Yeah. And, of course, that's actually quite a difficult thing to do because you want people to know you did a good thing to them, did a good deed. So, again, there's that balance there. But, actually, the tortoise focuses more on, I did a good thing and I feel good in myself for doing a good thing. And I'm sure somewhere along the line, I will get some acknowledgement. Now, in some jobs, that doesn't happen. If you don't have a good manager... That doesn't always happen. And so that does have to be a, something that tortoises look out for, is that just by getting your head down and just chipping away each day, you do need to be acknowledged at certain times. But that's not why you're doing things. That's not what you're seeking. It's not external acknowledgement. It's internal satisfaction. Yeah, so it's intrinsic, right, which comes back to the values side of things. It's like yeah. you know what your values are and you're living according to them. Now, I talk about values a lot and... Um, you talk about them a lot as well. If you were to advise, let's say, someone starting out, how would you advise someone to 
work out what their values are? I think it's just making lists of things that are important to you, things that fire you up in terms of things you've spoken passionately about. Why was I so passionate about that particular subject? You know, what was it that lit me up? You'll get a feel for something when it's a value. I do a little bit of mentoring. And when someone starts to talk about something, they become very animated in that subject. I think, oh, that's something deep within that person that lights them up. So I think being reflective and asking yourself the question, what is important to me? A bit like my notes to my son on the train. What do I want to be recognized and known for that is important? And and would those be traits like loyalty, positivity, Mm. generosity. So there are things to do with other people. You had a lovely phrase, actually. I think it's it's more about being than doing. Yes, how to be rather than how to do. And absolutely, that's it. Loyalty for me is a massive one. It's probably the biggest one. I'm a very, very loyal person. And there's nothing that will stop me from being loyal. You know, it's something that I really hold dear to myself. I hope I don't put this theory to the test, but, you know, I feel like if Andy sacked me tomorrow, I'd probably still turn up for work the day after. (laughs) You know, I don't just leave anything. And that lights me up and I feel really good about being loyal. Of course, there's been times in my life where I probably haven't displayed that value. And I say that in the book, you know, I'm not professing to be Mr. Perfect here and I'm always patient and I'm always loyal. And one thing I do know is that when I haven't displayed those values, when I've let myself down in those values, I know it. I know it immediately and I move on and learn from it. You know, yeah. And that's the other thing about establishing your values and living to your values. You're not always going to display those values. So one of the tests in the book is loyalty. Uh, and the test is, would you defend a friend or colleague if someone was speaking ill of them and they weren't in the room? Would you defend them? Would you defend who they are? Have I done that every time for a friend or colleague? No. Occasionally, I might have even joined in. I'm not perfect, but I know when I did it, something inside me fell over. (laughs) You know, something inside me is like, Matt, that's not who you are. You know that's not the right way to be. That's not who you are. Don't do that again. It's interesting, actually, you say that because I think um, once you get a bit clear on what your values are, there is that feeling inside, isn't there? You can tune into it. Oh, I'm on course or I'm off course. And actually, mm. I feel like it relates to intuition. Even, you know, we've got this internal GPS system that it's the same. It's actually related to that same thing that for both of us was like, we want to get to Wimbledon. We're not going to do it as yeah. players, but we're going to get there by hook or by crook. When you're not in alignment with your values, you do feel a little bit off. And um You talked about letting yourself down. And earlier you spoke about, you know, it's not about being a doormat. And I think that's, again, something important about values is if you're being true to yourself, then you have to do what feels right to you in any given moment. So if you're being a doormat and in the moment not being true to yourself, you're kind of abandoning yourself or letting yourself down, should we say. But also in a funny kind of way, you're trying to control how others perceive you because... Mm. It's not as obvious as, say, bossing someone around or, or something like that, but you're still behaving in such a way as to elicit a specific reaction that you want. So really, yeah. when you're talking about soft skills, it's about being true to yourself as often as you can be, whilst understanding that as a human being, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. And I think 
that living to your values and being true to your values takes toughness, takes strength mm. and resilience to do Definitely. that. Because sometimes you, you know, have to go against the tide, right? Absolutely. You know, I think toughness is something lots of people have spoken about, it, but something's quite misunderstood. There's lots of different types of toughness. You know, as a man, as a fitness trainer, you would think being aggressive, masculine, alpha about things is the way to be. And that's really not how I am as a person. But I know that I'm tough, mentally tough, because I've tried my best to stick to my values, been persistent, I've been resilient, I've shown fortitude in my life a lot. Those are my values and traits. And it's been very tough to do that at times. But that's not an obvious type of toughness. Whereas when you're with a group of blokes or a group of your mates at a bar and you're around other alpha male kind of types and you're the quiet one and a bit softly spoken, that doesn't mean you're not the tough one. And I think we need to get away from that in life of seeing people who are tough as being people who are confrontational. No, that's not the case. Actually, a lot of people who are confrontational are operating out of fear yeah, of, of situations, not being in control and being resilient and having the fortitude to say nothing sometimes. And, and I think that there are so many people out there that we don't celebrate who are so tough and so resilient, but they go unnoticed because they aren't the hare that's being loud and wanting everyone to think how tough they are. But actually, there are so many tough people out there, and I kind of want them to hear this message. I know you're tough. I know who's really tough and who's not. That's the nice thing, again, about living according to your values and, and living in this way that you're talking about is that you perhaps don't need the approval. You know, the metaphoric hair does. Mm. You know, we don't need you don't need that recognition or someone patting you on the back because mm. it's an intrinsic sense of satisfaction. Not to say, of course, we don't want to be recognized. We all do. That's that's yes. natural. Right. But if you've got that intrinsic sense of satisfaction from doing the right thing then you don't need the pats on the back quite as much and that's and i think we're in this age aren't we now where it's inevitable with social media and 24-hour news and all that kind of stuff it is the hair type should we say do draw the attention but that's not to say there aren't lots of people in the middle like you say who are being overlooked who actually yeah. are exhibiting exactly these traits these characteristics that are timeless and really yeah. really important aren't they yeah, absolutely. We'll never see a headline of teacher works 40 years all the way to the top and finally becomes headmaster and really succeeds as a headmaster. Da, da, da. You know, it's just never going to happen. And it's such a shame because, my goodness, that person requires some recognition for what they've done. But then they don't need it. And that's the beauty. Probably they don't. they don't need it. And that's probably no. the beauty of it. It's because, look, you know this, right? You've been in and around the top tennis circles. So, you're working in elite sport right at the top level. And you know that some people will have a certain persona mm. that isn't necessarily reflective of their private persona. Maybe they'll yeah. put on a bit of a show for the public and, and, and yeah. they're very invested in how people perceive them. Whereas yes. other people, and I actually include Andy in this, you know, for mm. a long time, so I'm half Scottish. It used to frustrate mm. me when some people would be like, bring up the old the England football comment that was misconstrued. It was Tim Henman's fault, by the way, everybody. Um, 
But, you know, over time, he's clearly like won people over. But to me, and Andy's a values guy, isn't he? Like Andy's very much like that. And, and actually, I, I was reading an article the other day where he was talking about the Naomi Osaka mm. incident. And I thought he gave the most, you know, because you were speaking about bravery. Right now, debates like those can be quite polarised. I don't know if, you, if you've read what Andy said, but he uh, was just very, very nuanced about it. You know, he, yeah. he sort of said, I don't think either side have particularly covered themselves in glory, the, the, the way yeah. the tournaments, or indeed, not, not necessarily Naomi, but actually he said her team. He would have been disappointed had his team. And I thought, in this day and age, to be as nuanced as that, first of all, is a real sign of maturity. And second, that is... that. You could argue that's quite brave. He's not just jumping on the bandwagon of what everyone else is saying in either direction, is he? No, he's an incredibly intelligent guy. And I think emotionally incredibly intelligent, emotional intelligence. He really does see both sides of most arguments. Mm. He has a feel for people and a feel for situations like I've kind of never seen for someone of his age. And he's had Mm. it for a long time. But I also think, again, living a life in the media and under the spotlight and being asked difficult questions and having that experience when he was younger has probably forced him to really sharpen those skills a lot. But when he gives answers on things, he's so considered. He really thinks about this stuff and he genuinely cares about them as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like genuinely cares about them. And that's something that I think has always impressed me as well, is that he's not just forever thinking about, okay, he's very focused on his career and his drive to succeed of course he but he genuinely thinks about other people's situations and is genuinely caring about other people's situations more so than anybody will ever know more so even than i will ever know actually he's a very very deep individual who really thinks about things and so yeah i did hear his comments and um and i thought they were very considered very kind of seeing both sides of the story like you say, so often these days, and catch myself doing it all the time, you get sucked into these polarised debates, especially on social media, because, again, the social media post of, hey, guys, there's two sides to this story. There's a middle <laughs> ground here. We'll get one like, whereas the this is terrible. No, it's not. It's brilliant. They get 2,000 likes. And it's just we've talked about it. I'm sure everyone's talked about it lots, privately, publicly. But, you know, the middle ground of the taking both sides of the equation story just doesn't make headlines and doesn't get people clicking. It's just not encouraged. But every situation I, I get the time to do it, I've learned from Andy in that way, is to try my best to put the other person's shoes on and have empathy for that person and have feel for where they're at in order for that situation to have occurred. Because how often have you done it? You've judged someone or some situation. And then a week later or a month later, you've heard what actually happened in that situation for that person to behave in that way or to do that thing that they did or to say what they said. And you go, oh, that's why. Well, of course, I would have probably said the same thing, you know, taking that time. And I know that's not how we're living. But every time I kick myself for thinking, why did you jump on that bandwagon and just why didn't you give it five more minutes thought to actually think, well, what, where really were they coming from in that situation? I don't know. Yeah. That's human psychology though, right? I mean, no. actually, you've got me thinking that with social media and since the introduction of the like button in particular, mm-hmm. like you say, 
if you do post something, it's hard not to think, oh, and how many likes has this got or, or yes. get invested in that in that kind of thing. So we are living to some degree in an approval culture where we seem to think that happiness is found by how we are perceived and the approval we get from mm. outside, from other people. Whereas mm. actually what you're arguing is that happiness and satisfaction is a long game that we get from living according to our intrinsic values, which yeah. are things like loyalty, all that kind of stuff. And do you know, I said at the beginning, what do you think Andy is? Uh, a hare or a tortoise, right? For me, I've been thinking about it. He's, de- he's a tortoise, right? But obviously in sport terms, yeah. everything's sort of sped up, isn't it? It's like you have a 40-year yeah. you know, career, but in 12 years or whatever. Yeah. You know, I think about Andy... I've I've been lucky enough to interview Andy several times, always found him like just a really nice down to earth, normal guy, like no airs or graces, like the sort of guy you just meet. And and if he wasn't a tennis player, it's just normal guy. Right. And I really admire people who've achieved such incredible things like Andy has, but have managed to retain that sort of humility. And the thing is, it has taken him a bit of time to become a national treasure. And I mean, there's no doubt he he is now. You'll always hear either Britain's greatest sports person or very much in that conversation. You know, when he hired Moresmo, the kind of stand he really took. I mean, he didn't do it for any reason. He did it because it was the right yeah. decision. But still, some of the stuff he came out with, like we said about this nuanced comments about Naomi Osaka and her, and her team... He's become beloved over time by doing exactly what you're saying, which is being true to himself and living according to his values. Absolutely. And I think in this day and age, we like to compare ourselves to other people a lot. Have I got as nice a car, a nicer house, or am I as successful? And whilst I think there is some motivation to be found in that, I actually think it's a much better way of going about things to compare yourself to yourself. Oh, 100%. So for Andy to compare himself to how he was, or for me to compare myself to how I was at a given point in time in the past, that's where true self-satisfaction and happiness lies. There is some motivation to say, look, I want to better this, I want more that. I think that's also okay to say that. But actually, the real true satisfaction is how much better am I than I was, whether that's who I am or what I'm doing or whatever. Comparing yourself to yourself is a much better use of your time. Modern day culture and certainly social media culture is, look at me, look at my life, isn't it wonderful? But actually me saying to myself, well, how would I have dealt with this situation that I dealt with today 10 years ago? Well, I know how I dealt with that situation 10 years ago and I know how I dealt with it today. And the other thing I think it's important to do is to sit back on situations and this is where we're talking about Andy being reflective and being you know, very nuanced in what he says. I don't know if he does this, but I know I do this is now. You know, they talk about fight or flight and then freeze. There's lots of different ways, responses to different situations. In the book, I talk about frame. So instead of fight or flight in a given situation, say nothing, do nothing, sit back, watch and wait and watch that situation evolve. And then consider your response and then give your response at the right moment, at the right time, sensing the right time to give your response. There's some situations that don't allow that, certain confrontations that don't allow that. But actually in life, when there are situations that come up, is actually just 
having the presence of mind to just sit back and don't react and wait and be silent and then consider all aspects of the situation and then finally deliver your response at the right time. Yeah, great advice. I was just thinking as well, you were talking about me v me. And the thing mm. is, if you're only in competition with yourself, then no one else is a threat. So therefore, it's much easier to be we focused, to be the tortoise, to be according to your values. Again, it's, it's an intrinsic thing because you're just trying to get a little bit better than you were yesterday or a year ago or five years ago, rather than better than Joe Bloggs. The more I think about your book, the more kind of sort of deep and spiritual almost I think it is. It's like the hair is ego. It's me and underneath that is a fear of others and having to climb over other people to get there. Whereas, you know, the tortoise who's living according to his values isn't seeking the external recognition. Ultimately, it's going to be much more sustainable. You may get the recognition, you know, and in your case, you've managed to, you know, enjoy some fantastic moments with Britain's greatest tennis player, probably of all time. But yeah, it's just really, I think it's very interesting, that difference of if you can focus on yourself and that intrinsic stuff, then you're actually a lot more free to sort of get on with other people. I don't, has that made sense? Absolutely. And it takes the sting out of most situations. It allows kindness to yourself. Being kind to yourself is such an important part of that journey. And it's the only thing in life you can control anyway. It's the only controllable aspect of your development in life is you, how you show up and how you think. You're never going to be able to control whether Joe Bloggs buys his Ferrari or not. But what you can control is your effort levels, your commitment, your dedication, your soft skills, you know, uh, your passion, your humility. You can control all those things. And like I said earlier, you can also recognize when you're not living up to or maximizing those traits in yourself like commitment is something that i talk about because like i've committed fully totally to my path i know i have i left the country to go to australia with a few hundred pounds and a credit card in my back pocket and my mission was to come back a year later in a much better place career-wise than when i left i wasn't going to go and hang around on beaches i was going to go and learn and network and come back in a better position. And as a result of that trip, I got my break with the Lawn Tennis Association and my real journey started in elite sport. And I believe that anyone who's not quite achieving what it is they want to achieve needs to ask themselves genuinely, where can I commit more? Because I guarantee if I sat down with them and really drilled into how committed they are, not to say they're not being committed, but there's, I'm sure there's an extra few percent of commitment that we could find that would get them the momentum that they would need to take some jumps and some leaps. Something someone said to me is, if you want to work with tennis players, you've got to go to where the tennis players are. No point sitting in your little town in the middle of nowhere, just hoping that a world-class tennis player is going to start hitting balls in your area. You've got to quit what you're doing. You've got to say to that those people and say to yourself, I'm going for it. I'm committing. I'm all in. I'm going to go for this and move to where the tennis players are or whatever it is that your chosen profession is. I'm going to be around the best because otherwise I've got no chance. So I'm sure that people can find little one percenters or 20 percenters where they're not quite committing enough to their journey. And I think that's also what's 
what is the difference between achieving and not achieving is how committed really are you? Goodness knows I've been around people that have committed fully to their journey for the last 15 years. Um, and, and just being around those people sinks into you. It absorbs into you just how committed and dedicated all of them are. But I also feel like in my own way, I've shown my own level of commitment and my own level of sacrifice to getting there. And, and, and it's a cliche, but you just don't get there without sacrifice. Right, last few things, Matt. A quick comment. Uh, I remember speaking to Russ Harris recently, the ACT guy, and he said, in terms of this soft skills, this living according to your values, this intrinsic living, is to imagine your funeral. And are people going to be at your funeral going, wow, he's done so well, he's earned this, he's got this car and blah, blah, blah. Or are they going to be there going, he was good, he was nice, he was loyal, he was funny. You know, he was reliable, those kind of thing. And I think when you think about it in those terms, it's quite stark. You know, what what is really important? Values, not, you know, fake approval and you yeah. know, climbing over others to get places. That was just a little point I wanted to make. Um, <laughs> you talk about talent. And I was thinking about Andy and how willing he was to go above and beyond. I was there. I was actually on court when he collapsed against Thomas Johansson yeah. at, at Queen's Club. And it looked like he'd been shot by a snipers up in the stand, you know. And then, but he turned himself into basically like the toughest player. You know, I know he worked with Lendl on adding a bit of zip to his forehand. Like he he, he just turned over any stone to squeeze anything out of his talent. Whereas if I think of other guys of, of around the same age who perhaps were, you know, arguably tipped for even bigger things, I would suggest mm. that they didn't do quite as much to squeeze out as much as they could of their talent. So I'm thinking of someone like Gasquet. Richard Gasquet, you know, fantastic backhand, great talent, you know, was tipped mm. as the Mozart of French tennis, good career, but mm. you, you, I would say he hasn't pushed himself in the same way that Andy. And I would argue the same is true of Gael Monfils, who won three of the junior major Grand Slams in 2004. I think at that time was seen as the, big, the better prospect than Andy. And he's kind of, he's had a good career, lovely guy, mm. everyone loves Gael, super fascinating to watch, you know, really entertaining. But I would suggest he as well hasn't quite squeezed as much out of his talent as Andy. Would you Would you go along with that? Okay. I mean, I've, I know those guys and I've seen Andy play them many times and I don't know on a daily basis just how dedicated and committed they are. I don't know would be the answer to that. But one thing I do know is that conversation that we all need to have with ourselves. Like I said, how committed am I really? Because like you say, there are so many people in life that think they're committed. You know, yeah, look, I work nine to five. Yeah, it's tough. You know, sometimes I stay till six. It's tough, you know. Whereas actually, you know, the high performers, you know, that Mark Wahlberg, uh, I don't know if you saw it, that article, yeah. you know, he gets up at, I don't know, three. You've, you've, got, it, you've got his schedule in your book, yeah. haven't you? I mean, it's <laughs> Yeah, startling. he gets up, he works out, then he does this, then he does that, then he hits golf balls, then he works out again, then he shoots. You know, that's commitment. And I'm not saying everyone needs to wake up at three. But if you really want to kick on to the next level and you normally wake up at seven, can you wake up at five and put in two hours before anyone else has even got up? You can. Everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. You know, how committed really are you? You know, and again, that's living true to yourself. Being honest with yourself is so key in this in this journey to say, really, how committed am I? Have I really put myself out there? I've really gone for it. Am I really all in? Because, like I say, there's always little areas where I don't think you are. 
I mm. don't think you are. And I don't think I have been sometimes myself. But like I say, when I haven't been, I've recognized it and I've changed it and I've gone all in. You know, it's funny you say that, actually. So I'm reading this book here, Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Highly yeah. recommended, right? And it's about basically phones and social media and all that kind of stuff and passive consumption of these things. You know, that yeah. it's, like, it's so easy to just disappear down a Twitter rabbit hole or whatever. And it, essentially, it's a passive waste of time. Yeah. And so for me, I'm trying to finding out little hacks and ways to not get sucked down that, that hole. But Andy as well, I saw Andy in that interview, he was talking about how he sees, you know, young players now when they're training, they'll be on their phone and mm -hmm. scrolling through stuff. And even their coaches are sort of scrolling through stuff. I mean, is this, is this something you've noticed over the last sort of 10, 15 years? Is this an increasing thing? Yeah, look, it's everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's on the practice court. It's in the treatment room. It's in the player lounge, but it's also on the tube on the way home. It's at the dinner table when you're at home. It's everywhere. It's crept into life. And of course, especially when you're trying to focus and you're supposed to be focusing, it can't be a good thing in that situation. You know, and I think that's where people have a problem with it. It's when you're supposed to be being present and you're supposed to be being in the now, you're just not because you've distracted yourself. You've taken your focus away. In many respects, though, I also think that what people tend to be doing when they're online is reading. We accuse kids these days, oh, they never read, they're always on their devices. But actually, so often now, there's so much information, they're actually reading. Okay, they might be studying specific things, but they're, they're reading about things. They're learning about things. They're making their mind up about things, actually. You know, and so... I think that's very generous, Matt. I've got to be honest with you. I think that's <laughs> well, very I, you generous. Know, it's the classic picture of, you know, back in the old days on the, on the train to work, everyone had the newspaper up, you know? I've seen that picture, yeah. Yeah, and now everyone's got on their phone. But essentially, it's just a better newspaper, which is smaller and doesn't make your fingers black. But it's a, <laughs> it's a newspaper that you can whip out at the slightest sign yes. of boredom. You can whip <laughs> it out in a queue... You never yeah. have to be with yourself. You never have to feel know, yeah. bored. And, yeah. and actually, the, re the reason I say so, this book really argues it brilliantly. And, and yeah. you know, how we are paying for that. He actually talks about young people born between 1995 and 2012 called iGen. A quote. Sorry, I know we're going off on one. Uh, I promise you we're going to finish. Please. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. And it's because they grew up with iPhones and social media. And there's a lot of research that shows that there's being increasingly distracted, their mental health suffering. Mm -hmm. The quote goes, much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. Now, mm -hmm. what this got me thinking, right? Now, you're going to think this is a bit out there, right? You know, everyone's like the next gen can't mm -hmm. kick through. Mm -hmm. They're all born after 1995. <laughs> so my theory is social media and phones is... Is, is allowing Djokovic and Federer and Nadal <laughs> to keep winning Grand Slams. What do you think? Are you in, Matt? Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, I don't think it's that simple. Um, <laughs> I think those guys are so unbelievably good. They're just so good. And they've got this hold on everybody because they're so good. I think it's going to be the next, next gen, which have a real surge in success because they won't have had that experience of, of losing to those top guys all the time. They'll experience success and, and believe that they've got the opportunity to win more as those older guys finally reach their kind of precipice. I, I just, um, 
they're just so good. They are so good. Yeah, they are good. I'll give you and, that. <laughs> um, and I kind of feel for this generation of players. They will get their moments. They they will. But these top, I include Andy. I think it's the top four. You know, of course people it was. Yeah, yeah. At me for it saying always that, was the big four, wasn't it? It, it? Yeah, it always was. And it, to me, it still is. It's always going to be. And I, it hurts me when I read all oh, the top three because Andy's there. God, he's so good. He's yeah. so good. No, no, um, and so... Yeah, I feel, personal opinion, it's not going to be this current next-gen, but it will be the next next-gen that are going to find a way. And in terms of our young people uh, and, and the book you're talking about, uh, and who knows how it will play out, I've got faith in the power of people and the power of kids and the power of the younger generation to accept and acknowledge the environment they've grown up in and find a way to make it for the better. And actually to say, we've grown up with this piece of equipment and with this information but we actually are smart enough to find a way around it and navigate it for the better and not allow it to drag us down not allow it to jellify our brains where we can't think for ourselves and all of those things that actually they'll find a way we're the generation that can't deal with it because it's new to us so we need to look at ourselves and how we are dealing with it and not project that onto our kids to say Oh, you haven't got a chance because I'm sure our parents thought we didn't have a chance with TVs all of a sudden being, or Walkmans or whatever it was. Uh, but <laughs> You're showing your age now, Matt. I know, I know. But, I, <laughs> you know, that's the job of the older generation to worry about the future generation. I reckon we're doing them a disservice. I think they're going to figure out a way to navigate this and be good and be all right about it. Tell you what, as a finishing point, I'm just going to read out the tortoise traits one more time, <laughs> values, okay? Loyalty, right, you've already displayed that. Passion, we know you went off to Australia. We know your passion for tennis. Generosity and positivity. And I think you've just exhibited the last <laughs> of those two there. So you're very much a man who walks his talk. Um, the power of the tortoise traits, which really means living in accordance with your values, right? That's what it means. Living, yeah. prioritizing we over me, not seeking success, at the expense of other people, all that kind of stuff. It's the it's mm. the old wisdom, isn't it? That's what mm. you that's what you're talking mm. about in this book. Yeah. The book, I have to say, literally is me. And every time I read the pages, you know, as I was doing before we spoke, I just it, it I just it's reminding me of who I am because it's literally me. Um and I just wanted to say actually to you, Simon, that it, it really has lit me up. The fact that you've read the book and you've absorbed it, you know, and you've really um, thought about it and and reacted to it. However, that reaction, and I genuinely, I mean this, I really appreciate it because it's that book is me and it's like you've read me and appreciated. And I know this sounds a bit, you know, it's not how us Brits speak, but thank you for doing that because genuinely it really means something to me that you have and you've understood it and you've thought about it. So thank you. No, but that's very kind of you to say, Matt. And, you know, you're right. It's, it's not very British, but perhaps we're getting a little bit better at that. You know, the younger <laughs> generation is showing us, right? Yeah. But no, I, I, I think I'm such a vocal advocate of trying to live according to your values. And this book makes a compelling argument for why that actually is a, a really good decision, you know, on a number of levels. So, you know, I really tip my cap to you. 
I appreciate your patience at the beginning of the call as well. So that was in there. That's one of your values as well. Anyway, listen, Matt, it's, it's been a real pleasure. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed as a tennis nerd Andy's career. So it's lovely to chat to, you know, someone who's been integral, an integral part of his team on that front as well. So I congratulate you for everything that you've achieved alongside him. It's been wonderful to, to enjoy. You know, will we ever get to experience it again? Who knows? Fingers crossed, but, you know, I wouldn't bank on it, put it that way. Anyway, Matt Little, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Don't Tell Me The Score with Matt Little. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. He's a terrific guy and I hope you enjoyed it too. And if you did and wanted to spread the love with a rating and kind review on Apple Podcasts, I'd be hugely grateful. If you could share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it, that would make a huge difference too. A reminder that you can sign up for my newsletter at simonmundy.com and do follow me on Instagram at simonmundy for some more Wimbledon content and much more besides. That's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. Sincerely, I do really appreciate it. And I hope you'll join me again next time on Don't Tell Me The Score. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.